This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hey everybody, welcome to the show today. We have a fantastic guest that I've been trying to get on the podcast for a long time. And this particular young man, his name is Captain John Landry. I fished with his father, John Landry Sr., for a lot of years down in the Florida Keys. And he started bringing young John when he was about 10 years old. And uh, John was always a heck of an angler. His dad was a great angler. And uh, it's been fun to watch because young John turned into a guide himself, starting in Alaska and then starting his guide service down in the Fort Myers area. And uh, he has developed into a really five-star, very professional, very good fishing guide. And um, it's, it's been real fun to watch him progress and do that and also be um, a real voice in conservation, conservation in both Alaska uh, and in Florida. And that is a lot of that is with Captains for Clean Water. We're going to talk about a lot of water quality issues, but we're also going to get his story about how he started guiding, uh, how he made the transition uh, from zero experience in freshwater to guiding in Alaska and then back to Florida starting his business and going through so many things, man. He's had the BP oil spill. He's had hurricanes. He's had uh, water quality issues. He's had all kinds of things going on uh, and still managed to uh, get this business going and do well and um, good people attract other good people and john is one of those good people so stand by for a great podcast with my friend john landry i'm captain john landry this is the tom rowan podcast john landry wow man i've been wanting to have you on the podcast for a long time and and i'm really really happy to have you here Oh, thanks for having me, Tom. This is uh, very exciting for me, and uh, glad to be here. Yeah, well, our history is uh, <laughs> is interesting. We we go back because I used to fish with your dad. What age yep. do you think you were coming down and, and fishing with with your dad and I? And I was trying to think about that, Tom. And I I think the first trip I did, I was probably ten years old. <laughs> and then uh, that shoot man i mean we used to fish uh, i used to come down and fish the red bone tournaments you know like that sticks out in my head oh it was so uh, fun yeah it was so fun i remember when you were 10 years old and you know uh we would be fishing for whatever maybe catch some jacks or whatever and i got a i got a rod and 
you know, maybe I throw out there and, and, you know, I'm trying to pull the boat and do everything. And I would just hand, you know, like hook a fish and hand it over to you as a 10 year old. And, uh, your dad's like, he doesn't want that. He's not going to reel in your fish. You have to reel that fish in. I mean, that's how it went from day one. And, uh, man, you really, um, developed into a great angler and it's been been, um, fun to see you, uh, develop this guide career. Um, Tell me how that started. I mean, you're going to Alaska. You're guiding in Fort Myers. Um, what? Yeah, how, how did I mean, all that start uh, for you? I mean, I always loved to fish, but I honestly, I never saw myself being a being a fishing guide. Um, you know, I it started for me. I went to Florida Gulf Coast University, and uh, you know, I got my captain's license out of high school. I just thought it'd be a good opportunity for me to guide through college. You know, I was fortunate, you know, my dad had a boat I could use, you know, I had a lot of friends in the business. I knew I could just get some overflow trips on the weekends, you know, here and there to get me by. And, uh, it was really the opportunity I had in Alaska, which was my junior year of college. I went to Alaska that summer and, uh, it really changed my life, Tom. You know, I came back that fall and I realized that, I was going to, you know, whatever I was going to do the rest of the year had to allow me to go to Alaska for the summer. And so, you know, when you start thinking about that, you're like, well, I could be a teacher, you know, that ain't going to work. <laughs> so I, uh, I, I, I fell into full-time guiding, you know, and it's really because of Alaska. I wanted to be able to make my own schedule and uh, be up there for the summer. So that's after I graduated college, I just kind of fell into it full-time and, uh, you know, bought my own boat and, you know, there's a big change when you go from, you know, just a couple trips on your dad's boat here and there to get by. Do you know, I'm going to put bread on my table, you know, and like, you know, from guiding. So that was a big step for me. And I mean, shoot, when I started was the BP oil spill, you know, oh, like really? that was my, that was my first year of like, you know, full-time guiding. And like, looking back at the last, you know, 13 years I've been doing it, I mean, had the BP oil spill, had the red tide. You know, the freshwater releases of 2014, COVID, Hurricane Ian. You know, it's a pretty, <laughs> pretty tough climate well, to uh, start a guide business. I'll tell you what, if you can make it through all of that, you're, you're, doing, you're doing well. What, what has been the, the secret to making it in there? Have you been really, I mean, you got great uh, mentorship from your, from your dad, who's seen a lot of different guides in the, in the industry, both do very well and make mistakes and other things, but. I would imagine that keeping your bills as low as possible as you're starting is super important. But and then when you have all of these different events that are going on, um, what what has been the secret to uh, being able to stay in business during all of these bad times? Uh, I mean, like you said, you know, definitely being smart about how you spend your money. Um, and then really just, you know, building and maintaining relationships with, you know, like my good clients, you know, I mean, I think that has been my saving grace, you know, like I got guys that'll, you know, come down and, you know, like last year, like my talking season didn't skip a beat, you know, I got guys staying in places that, you know, like there's construction outside and the first floor of the hotel is still wrecked from the storm, but like, they don't care, you know, like they'll still come down to, uh, fish with me. I think that, you know, just the relationships that I've been able to build has carried me through some hard times. Yeah, that is, that, that's exactly, you know, we have a very similar story in that. Like I started my guide career because I went to Yellowstone and I had a similar kind of experience to you. Like I came back and I was like, my life has changed. 
And I'm going to yep. do that every summer. And if it's not that, I'm going to figure out something else to do. And actually, yep. what I thought I was going to do was go to Alaska. And that was my next step. And um, you would probably get a, a kick out of this. I thought I was going to work in a cannery. I thought, like, that's what I heard. Like, back then, you know, it was before the Internet and before I knew many people. And, and I just heard you could go up there and get a job in a cannery. So I was like, well, that sounds good. I'm going to go up there. My dad's listening to this, this uh, plan. And he's like, huh. You don't have a car. You don't know anyone. You don't even know where you're going up there. And uh, he very artfully passed me over an opportunity to go to a guide school in Jackson, Wyoming. and was like, would you rather do this instead of maybe going to Alaska? Which was his way of saying, this sounds like a terrible idea. <laughs> um, but, yeah, that's how I ended up doing that, too. And, um, and then... Um, you, owe, you owe your dad a big thank you for oh, that. Oh, I, I, I certainly do because uh, the cannery thing probably would not have gone very well. I can't. Yeah, it sure doesn't it. seem like that much fun. No, you know? it, it really doesn't. But um, you know, I was young and dumb, and uh, that's what a dad's good for. They uh, yeah. they they kind of steer you in the right direction without telling you that you're that you're being really stupid. You know, it's kind yeah. of like a very very careful. Um, uh, kind of change of direction, right? Like, yep. and, and it worked and it worked and yep. it, it turned out great. But when, you know, doing that, that kind of was, was a similar thing of like, that's, that's what I want to do. I found the saltwater later. Of course you knew the saltwater first. And yep. I always say that when you, um, when you raise your kids around the ocean, they want to go to the mountains. And when you raise your kids around the mountain, they want to go to the ocean. So you were drawn to Alaska. What, how, how did you get that first experience? At, at first opportunity to work up there? Uh, I, I owe my opportunity up there to, uh, to Andrew Bostic. Oh yeah. You know, you of know, course. well, yeah, I was, I was fishing with Andrew, uh, Andrew and my dad down in the Everglades must've been the fall of 2010. And Andrew had just got back from a trip up there to Bristol Bay. Um, and he was at another lodge, uh, Bristol Bay lodge. He was up there with a client doing like a hosted trip. And uh, it was his first trip to the area, first trip to that lodge. And, uh, you know, he just he's like, dude, I, I think this is something that you would absolutely love. If I was your age, John, I'd be all over it. That, that's all I needed to hear. And uh, Andrew knew a guy that guided in the park at the time. His name was Todd Hadley. Todd grew up with the owner of the lodge. Well, at the time, he was the manager. Now he's the owner. So Andrew put me in touch with uh, John Perry and then uh, – yeah, a phone phone interview with some awkward questions led to me getting the job, and this coming summer will be fourteen years. Wow! So yeah. now you're the veteran, but when you're when you're going up there to start, you have zero yep. experience other than saltwater experience, of course, and you're you've been around boats your entire life, and and uh, you're you were probably a really good hand. You're big, strong kid right going up there. But what yep. what when you when you enter into a a, a situation like that? no experience everything's new what what uh what is that like what what kind of mindset do you need to have what kind of um you know what what do you how do you have success when you get there um with with no experience like that uh i think just recognizing that you have no experience you know that like you aren't you know you aren't a great fisherman in that environment you know it's new to you and uh, I think just truly recognizing that and then, you know, like 
listening to what others have to say and like, you know, asking questions and just, you know, being humble and truly, you know, just kind of being a sponge for everything you can take in. And then that's exactly what I did. Cause I mean, Tom, I knew absolutely nothing. I mean, like prior to getting the job and talking to Andrew, you know, until I did a little Google search on the lodge and the fishery, I was under the assumption that salmon was one fish. You know, if you went out and caught a, <laughs> you caught a salmon, like that's a salmon. I didn't realize there was five kinds, you know, I mean, I was, I was about as green, green as you could be for sure. <laughs> but uh, I was fortunate, man. I mean, the guys uh, that I learned under and, uh, you know, like when I came into the laws, they, they really took me under their wing. They showed me what I needed to know, what I didn't need to know. And kind of the whole keep it simple, stupid mentality. And, you know, I, I was given a lot of time to uh, get out on the river that, that first year and just kind of, you know, learn the river and, you know, very blessed for that opportunity and how I was brought into, uh, into the fishery for yeah. sure. Were you running jet boats or drift boats or rafts or what were you, what were you learning the river? On? Uh, my, my first year I was running a prop boat, little 18 low. And then, uh, now I run a, uh, I run a jet boat. I do, uh, do the trout trips up to a section of the river we call the braids. But, uh, yeah, starting out, it was, you know, just about six miles above the lodge and two miles below it. And, uh, pretty simple body of water yeah. to uh, get your feet wet. Yeah. That's awesome, man. That, that's so cool to have that, to have that opportunity and then to, to capitalize on it. And now you've been doing it for 14 years. All right. So one of the things that we do on the podcast before we get too, too far along with, uh, with the conversation, um, is to go on the hot seat. So I got a series of questions. They're kind of either or, or what you prefer. <laughs> And uh, it's kind of rapid fire style, and it get, yep. it allows the audience to get to know you a little bit better, and and also uh, we we loosen up, and and uh, maybe there's something even funny in here that we can talk about even further. So you ready to go? Lay it on me, Tom. Okay. Let's do it. Coffee, tea, or energy drink? Coffee. Mountains, beaches for vacation. Mountains or beaches for vacation. Mountains. Favorite fishing movie or TV show? Ah, uh, saltwater experience. Boom. Hands down. <laughs> you brown noser. Uh, Winter Olympics or Summer Olympics? Summer Olympics. Favorite pro wrestler of all time? Stone Cold Steve Austin, baby. There you go. Sunrise or sunset? Sunrise. Country, classic rock, rock or rap? Only had to listen to one. Well, you know, whatever. I go rap. Rap? Okay. Who's your favorite right now? Uh, Juice World. Okay. Um, you know Juice World, Tom? Yeah, I do. I have kids, yeah. you know. <laughs> <laughs> and I also have a workout group that, that people bring in all different kinds of music. So oh, yeah. uh, we have Rap Day. We have uh, we have um, Country Day. and uh, But typically it's uh, classic rock. Um, oh. All right. Best catch in your career. Oof, my wife. Hey, brown noser. <laughs> You're just keeping that brown uh, nose going. Uh, text or calls? Text. A movie that makes you laugh? Uh, Super Troopers. <laughs> last book you remember reading or your favorite book? Uh, the last book I remember reading was uh, The History of the Lake Mansfield Trout Club. Wow. Yeah. Is that good? That uh, was great, yeah. Awesome. Okay, East Coast or West Coast? Which I guess uh, would include Alaska. I'd have to go West Coast. Okay. East Coast or West Coast of Florida? West Coast. Early fishing memory or trip that made you a lifetime angler? 
Ooh, I got so many of those. Uh, I I would have to say uh, catching my first tarpon. Nice. Who'd you do that yeah. with? Uh, the first one I did all by myself was uh, with my dad and with Andrew in uh, Captiva Pass. Nice. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, spinning rod, conventional, or fly rod? Uh, for me personally, fly rod. Okay. Inshore or offshore? Depends where we're at, Tom. <laughs> you got where a big one. You got yeah. a big one. Which do you prefer? Inshore. Okay. River, lake, or backcountry? Man, these are tough. I know. Uh, can't decide. Would you have a reptile as a pet? Negative. Would you have a bird as a pet? No. <laughs> One of your favorite bands besides Juice World. One of my favorite bands besides Juice World. Mm. Red Hot Chili Peppers. Instagram or Twitter? Instagram. One thing you're afraid of? Failing. Gamakatsu, TM Co. owner or must-add? Must-add. Office, friends, or parks and rec? Office. One piece of technology you rely on heavily other than your phone? Uh, my camera. Nice. Favorite fish? Tarpon. Android or iPhone? iPhone. Audio paper or Kindles for books? Paper. Chocolate or vanilla? Chocolate. Alaska or Florida? Alaska. <laughs> One piece of advice that has served you well. Uh, live life on your own terms. Nice. Yeah. Who told you that? Uh, my dad kind of instilled in that, instilled that into me at a young age. You know, basically like, you know, life's, you know, it's yours for the taking. You know, it's up to you to carve out a lifestyle that, that you want and, uh, everything's possible so i owe that to my old man yeah well you got a good old man he was always one of my favorite uh customers and it's been really cool to see you guys um you know maintain your relationship over these years and and you were telling me when we ran into one another at the captains for clean water event that that he goes up to alaska with you or kind of spends a good amount of time up there what's the what's his program up there uh, he's on a he's on an every other year program right now, and I mean, he he loves coming up there and, and helping out. You know, like he'd rather, you know, he he has just as much fun staying at the lodge and offering a hand and whatever that may be. You know, like whether it's preparing meals or doing projects or working on boats as he does, you know, out there fishing. He just he loves being at the lodge and just being a part of the lodge family and helping get stuff done. So uh, it's uh, definitely definitely great to have him up there, and I cherish that time for sure. That's awesome, and so. Uh, the every other year is that just that's the way he prefers it, or that's what the lodge needs, or or how does that work out? I, no, no, he's that's that's on his terms, and I mean honestly, it's it's the travel, you know, it's 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 a lot of travel for him, you know. Uh, so it, the, the every other year is is his terms. Yeah, that's uh that's awesome that that he does that, and you guys do that together. Another thing that I've seen you do, and I just got back from a from a duck and goose hunt in uh, Saskatchewan and it was incredible. But one of the yeah. things that I've seen you do up there is a uh, duck hunt for the sea, sea ducks, the King yep. Eider. Tell yep. me about that. Uh, hands that's down. supposed to be the hardest, most difficult environment to hunt ducks in. I don't know if the birds are hard to hunt, but 
that's a tough place to hunt ducks. I think, I don't know. Tell me about it. Cause I've never done it. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I really can't imagine a, a harder, harsher environment to, uh, to hunt, hunt ducks. That's for sure. And I mean, the thing about it is like, I, I had never killed a duck in my lifetime. You know, the first duck I ever killed was a King Eider, you know? Wow. So I mean, I'm probably the only American aside from a native growing up on St. Paul that can say that. And, uh, it was a buddy of mine, Russell Owen, who I guided with you know, in the summer at fish camp, you know, sea duck hunting was his passion. That was his tarpon fishing. Like he was ate up with it and he was probably the best in the world. He ended up calling me one October, you know, and they have a small operation. Uh, he, so one, one of his guys couldn't make it up. So he called me and he's like, Hey man, he's like, I need you, I need you to come up and, uh, and guide St. Paul, if you'd be interested, not going to, he knows I don't, I don't hunt, you know, never killed a duck, da, 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 da. but, uh, you know, it was a, sounded like a, a wild experience and uh, I didn't want to let Russ down. And I, I just trusted him that, you know, he'd be able to uh, show me the ropes and, and that he did, you know, I, I owe all my success up there to just following his game plan and doing exactly what he told me to do. But, and that was, that was a wild experience. And uh, I did two years out there and, uh, Hopefully one year go back, you know, to work out or I can go back and do it again. Uh, yeah, no regrets on tell that. Me, tell me about that that hunting. Like, you know, especially for uh, for Florida hunters, a lot of people hunt like the Okeechobee area. And, and mm-hmm. you know, it's typically warm water. You've got alligators. You've got uh, bugs. You've got all kinds of different things. And then you get move up into the south uh, you have some cold weather hunting and you got waders and boats and stuff like that. But walk us through what a what a king eider hunt looks like so king eider hunt uh would start with you checking the weather hard the night before that's going to dictate your plan for the next day so depending on the weather you know we usually have three options you launch from the boat ramp at the south side of the harbor or you know you do a beach launch off the leeward side of the island or you would do a uh just a short hunt you know where you're hunting from the rocks you know waiting for birds to fly by and then uh the thing about the little shore hunt though is is there's there's no dogs allowed in the island of St. Paul and that's to protect the seal population. So, you know, when you're hunting on land, you're hunting on land because the weather's too bad for you to get out in a boat. But so you, in order to get your birds back, you have to hunt on the windward side of the island. So after you shoot one, the waves wash it into the rocks. Mm-hmm. Well, as the the new guide on St. Paul, I guess who the Labrador retriever was. That, <laughs> that would be me. And out of everything I did, that was that was definitely my least favorite was, you know. When somebody shot a bird and I'd have to go, you know, chasing down the slippery rocks, you know, it's just, uh, yeah. Um, what, and what temperatures are you typically? Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't too bad. I mean, you know, it was a range of probably 12 to 35 degrees, somewhere in there. Wow. Yeah. 12 degrees. The waves are crashing all over you probably, right? <clears throat> Tom. The, uh, the, the worst weather that I was ever out in a boat in was my was my first day. First day, <laughs> of course. I, I swear to God, I remember laying in bed and like you know you can hear just like you know a lot of metal tin roofs on old buildings up there, and you can hear them just beat into the side of the building. And I look over at Russ, and I'm like, we're not going hunting, we're not going out now, right? And he's like, oh yeah, it's an east wind, we'll be fine. And like Tom was literally blowing forty to fifty, all right. <laughs> we, we launched we launched the boats, and uh, you know, I don't know if you watched Deadliest Catch, but uh, the, the time band, it was in the harbor and they were, you know, getting crab pots or 
doing something. So we pulled over to get a photo opportunity for the guys. And it was just like you see in the show, you know, the flags up front, tattered, lights are on, it's just sideways, just rain, sleet, just crap blowing everywhere. Pull up next to the boat and Hillstrand pulls the window down, flicks the cigarette out and it's just gone, right? <laughs> he, st- he sticks his head out and he goes, you guys are fucking nuts and then slams the window back up and i'm here like pop, 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 pop. like i've watched every episode of the show like on my couch you know just like god these guys are crazy and you know hillstrand just told me that i'm nuts so that was a real <laughs> reality check moment for me for sure yeah <laughs> and were you successful on that day i did yeah we limited out first day out yeah dang and then from that point <laughs> on it's been easier than day one uh, just, I mean, easier in the sense of, you know, I like, didn't have the nerves and, you know, like I'd never, you know, like, shit, I mean, like I got out with Russ one day before clients came in to just kind of like, you know, see how to get in and out of the Harbor. But, you know, I had made the, the Ronda Weaverville hunting. And so it was just, you know, getting that comfort zone, getting the first, first day bugs out of the way. It was easier. Yeah. Wow. And then, um, yeah, I, I do notice that you take your, your dog up there, right? Like you, you uh, not, some, not, the, not the St. Paul. They don't allow dogs on. Right. That's St. what Paul, I was, but... I was wondering because you said that and I, I had seen your dog on some of the, the posts and stuff. Oh uh, yeah. What she, yeah. They come, they come up to, uh, the fishing lodge for yeah. sure. But yeah. So, um, man, and the, and what's the, like, what's a good day King Eider hunting? You can you, you, uh, you kill one or like, can you get your limit? Like what is, what, uh, what's to be good, expected? Uh, well, I mean, as a non-resident hunter, you're only allowed four king eiders for the year. For the year? You know, for the wow. year. Okay. Yep. And so basically, you know, like if you had good weather and you could get out in a boat hunt, like, and you were somewhat of a good shot, you know, you should kill a good chunk of your birds in that, in that day. Wow. Um, but you know, big thing too is, you know, like, if you're only going to shoot four birds, you know, you want them all to be primo birds, right? And so a primo bird would be a mature Drake King Eider. So that, you know, the the best day you could have would be to go out and shoot four mature Drake Kings. Wow. And are you using yeah. decoys or what, how do you get them to you? Uh, basically just, you know, we would run, we would run decoys. I would run, you know, six or seven birds and it, it was enough to just kind of pull birds in for, you know, a look, but they're never decoying into the spread. And, uh, you're really just, you know, getting in the lane where the birds want to go naturally. Right. So you're just setting yourself up for pass shooting. Basically. Um, you know, the birds would want to come into the rocky points and the reefs to feed. So you're just able intercepting their flyways. Wow. Yeah. That's a cool looking bird. I mean, it's, yeah, it's literally beautiful. one of the most beautiful ducks, I would say, beautiful. right up there with like a, you know, a, a southern wood duck, you know, with all the, the colors. And it's just, it's a really incredible uh, bird. I don't know if I want beautiful. to do it bad enough to go in those conditions, but maybe one day, maybe one day I'll give it a shot for, yeah. uh, I mean, that seems like you got to be there kind of at the right time of the year and the right day and almost have a special trip uh, just for those. The people that were coming up there, were they like... Uh, very serious duck hunters that were trying to get that last species or. Oh yeah. I mean, I would say just about all of them. Mm-hmm. I mean, die hard duck hunters, every single one of them, 
uh yeah usually it was it was the last bird in their quest to shoot every duck you can shoot in north america and nice. just because of the where you had to go to have a good chance of getting it done the king eider was last on that list and so you know, here i am you know i've never killed a duck and one of the hardest things for me tom was just you know you know just shooting the shit with the guys you know like talking duck hunting you know like, <laughs> um, duck hunt. <laughs> and just still trying to make like you know like show off you know like i'm confident like i'm capable in what i'm going to do without telling them that like i've never killed a duck before but how do you do that uh you just you know you don't don't nail yourself down to any specifics kind of go with the flow like you know, i remember guys being like well, Andrew, you do a lot of duck hunting down in Florida. I'm like, well, you know, not as much as I like to. You know, I'm like, <laughs> what a great oh, answer. What do you what do you hunt down there? Oh, we get a little bit of everything, you know, and then let them fill it in. Like, oh, you get bluebills sometimes, you know. <laughs> so just yeah, don't nail yourself down any specifics and go with the flow. But I mean, as a guide, you know, like you have to you have to have confidence, and you can't let your clients know that, like you know, like you've never done this before, right? You know, no matter what that is, right? I mean, I'm having flashes of my first guided trip ever, uh, and and I I got lost on the way to the river. Um, I didn't even know how to get there, but I mean, they were like, "So you've been guiding long? Oh yeah, long time, you long know, time, like, long time for me. Like you know, yeah. you're not lying, you know. Not lying. I mean, I've been here for two weeks, and that's that's yep. the longest I've been away from home ever in my whole yep. life. So mm-hmm. uh, long time, yeah. Long time. Uh, but th- those first trips are, whew, that's tough. I was so nervous. I think I peed all over myself too when I went to the bathroom and, you know, uh, and the, my boss is like, you know, bangs on the door like, okay, your clients are here. You try to hurry up and it's like, oh man, you're like, not cool. Like, I not just think cool. I peed all over my khaki pants here. This is not good. And you're yep. walking out to, to meet these guys. And, and I remember they were so hungover. I still have a picture of the first. Uh, I have a picture of, of the guy I took. And he was so hungover that he they both fell asleep in the truck. And so I'm going down to the river. And I get to this Y. And one way led to the Green River. And the other way led to the Salt River. And I couldn't remember which way I went. And... I had to turn around and they were both asleep and they didn't, they didn't even notice, but it yep. was, it was, uh, I mean, I was as green as you were, uh, yep. when, when you were talking about going to Alaska for the first time, um, man, good times though. Somehow you make it through that. And, uh, yeah. And I mean, I, I think, it, I mean, anytime where you put yourself in a position, you know, where you allow yourself to be uncomfortable, you know, and then you're able to get the job done is a, it's a very rewarding experience, you know, like, I mean, you know, like that, that first, that first day on St. Paul, man, I don't know if I've ever felt more alive and more focused in what I was doing than, than that day for sure. Yeah. Isn't that something? And then, then, but the funny thing is, is like now you're 14 years into it. You still love it. You still, I don't know. Do you have the same uh, attitude of trying to listen and learn as much as you possibly can from everybody you possibly can learn from, or have you kind of, I don't know. How does that change for you? Uh, I mean, in, in terms of uh, Alaska fishing, yeah. yeah, I mean, that's that's definitely changed. You know, I definitely tune in and tune out who I want to, uh, you know, who I'm really listening to as opposed to just making conversation. But, uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, now this is the year 14. I remember my first year on the river and, like, seeing guys on the river and hearing stories about them. Like, oh, that's Jeff. You know, he's been on the river for eight years. You know, you think, like, oh, wow guy's grandpa you know like there's bill he's been on for 15 you know for 
you know, 14, 15 years, like, oh my God, legend. Like now, you know, like I'm one of the oldest guides on the river, you know, it's just to like make that, you know, come full circle with it is uh, a cool experience. It is. And, um, and also you've got a lot of years under your belt um, back home, right? Yep. In Fort Myers. And so uh, what's your, what's your program when you're in the saltwater? Uh, my, my program in the saltwater, like my, my bread and butter is, uh, tarpon fishing. Um, kind of over the last couple of years, uh, just, you know, changed my business model a little bit where I don't, you know, I'm not trying to fish hard every month. Uh, now I do basically, uh, yeah, I fish, uh, March through the first week of June here, tarpon fishing. I'm up in Alaska till the end of September. And then uh, I fish, you know, a couple of my really good clients October through the first two weeks of November. And then I, I really kind of, you know, pull the reins back and uh, take time for me and my wife to uh, travel and do things that we want to do for, you know, that December, January, February. And, and that's been uh, one of the best decisions that I've, I've made in my uh, guiding career. You know, it's yeah. very important to maintain, you know, those relationships outside of fishing and you know, as well as anybody, man, it's, it's hard to, to grind, you know, like day in, day out, still maintain a healthy relationship with your wife or your kids. You know, it's, well, it is that, that is a very mature way to think of it. And many, many guides, um, l lose track of that. And, and, yep. you know, when you're so passionate about what you're doing, you can sometimes easily take for granted some of the things that, that are the best things that you have in your life, like your family and your wife and your kids yep. and, and things like that. And, and you're, you know, you're working so hard for your family, but somewhere along the line, you kind of forgot that they also need you. And yep. it's, it's easy to, it's easy to do. And it's, it, unfortunately there's a, there are a lot of guides that you can learn from that have not been successful in that, you know, outside of their fishing. There's some of the best yeah. fishermen ever but yep. can't keep their family together. Yeah. And, and like you brought up earlier, you know, like you learn from, you know, growing up, you know, like you watch people that you, you know, you see do it the right way and then you see guys do it the wrong way. You know, and like I remember seeing guys, you know, uh, just for example, like with the relationship, you know, like boom, they lose their wife, they lose their family, you know, and like you, you know, attribute it to how much they work or how much they guide. So like, you know, it's a little mental note, you know, like when I get down the road, you know, I go on a, focus on my family and, you know, avoid the burnout and just try and make it something that I'm able to do for a long time. And I'm happy doing what I love. I mean, you talk to a lot of guys and like, you know, they really aren't that happy, you yeah. know, and it's a lot of times it's a position they put themselves in, you know, they get over leveraged, you know, and they get in a bad spot financially and they have to fish a lot, you know, fish bad weather, fish clients. They don't want to fish, you know, it's, so I've just been fortunate to kind of position myself uh, where I am now. And what about the uh, the change of seasons, the change of locations? How much do you think that keeps you kind of engaged? And and at this point in your career, do you think that you know if the if the fishing would allow for 365 days in Alaska, uh, and you could choose between 365 up there where you're fishing all the time and 365 in Florida, would you still want to move around and do two different seasons? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think I would, yeah, um, you know, even as much as I love Alaska, you know, 365, you'd still have, you know, you'd still have some phases of burnout and, you know, getting tired of scenery, which is crazy to say, but yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's reality, you know, and 
I know for me here, you know, by the time I'm winding down with my tarpon season, like I cannot wait to get to Alaska. And I feel like that helps me get through, you know, like my tarpon season and maintain a positive attitude knowing that, you know, I'm going to Alaska in a couple of weeks, you know? Yeah. So that's, uh, that's been huge for, uh, for my career and just, you know, like staying in the love of the game. Yeah. I think that's incredibly important. I mean, even just in Florida, for me, it was, um, you know, getting a bay boat, getting out of the skiff after just fly fishing for tarpon every day for a long time. And yep. then saying, you know what, we're going to, I'm going to get in the bay boat after this. And, you know, we're going to run around and find new stuff and do different things and, you know, load up the live well with bait and like, we're going to catch some fish, like, you know, even if they're snappers or whatever, but that change was big for me. I mean, I think you need some kind of change, whether it's a change of scenery or, or a vacation or getting a different boat or try offshore fishing for a while or something. I don't know. It, 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 it made a difference to me. What, what, uh, you said that you and your wife are, are trying to do some different things and like, what's on your bucket list? What kind of things have you done in these three months um, that you, that you set aside for that? Like, what do you guys like to do? Uh, we've, we've been on a Costa Rica kick these, uh, these last couple of years. Uh, last year we actually got married down in Costa Rica nice. and, uh, we stuck, we stuck around we ended up spending five or six weeks down there. Uh, the year before we spent two months, January and February. And, uh, yeah, I plan on going back this year and that's what, what do you do down there? Uh, do a lot of fishing, do yeah. a lot of, a lot of relaxing, um, a lot of photography, um, just hanging out, man, uh, just spending time with my wife and my dogs and just living. And have you found a, a, a good place that you continue to go back to, or are you still exploring down there? Uh, a little bit of both. So like <clears throat> this next trip coming up, we'll, uh, we'll hit a couple of our favorite spots and then uh, we want to go check out the uh, Caribbean side, which we haven't, haven't been to before, but, uh, yeah, God willing, that's that's the plan. Mm -hmm. Which side has the good surfing? The surfing would be Pacific side. Yeah, I've heard yeah. really good things about the surfing down there, and cool little yeah, towns it, you can go to yeah. and just hang out and surf. Yeah. Seems awesome. Yeah. yeah, if you're into surfing, man, that, that looks like paradise. I I am not a surfer or any kind of board sport guy, but uh, yeah, I was out there on the boogie board catching some waves and getting yelled at by the surfers, but. <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, I'm not a surfer either, but I, I, I went to Hawaii and I surfed with my boys. We got a guide, which I thought was kind of cool, uh, getting a surf guide because a surf guide acts a lot like a fishing guide. And if you get a really good one, man, your day is so much better. And he yep. puts you in exactly the right spot. And if somebody starts to horn in on you, he goes over there and takes care of it. If, if, the locals are like, I mean, locals are cool with it. Like if you're with him, everything's all right. Right. So yeah, there's no, that makes there's, a lot no of sense. there's no problem. He puts you in exactly the right spot. He even pushes your board if you need to. Um, but you know, when you don't know surfing and you're a hundred yards outside of the right spot, you catch yep. nothing. And it's, yep. it's a frustrating experience. And, yep. and, uh, to be with somebody who really knows it well, uh, really was a, great enhancement to the day. And I, I, you know, as a guide myself, I was like, I, you know, I see what this guy's doing and it takes a lot of skill and it takes, you know, this is like, he's a full on professional at this mm -hmm. and he's in Hawaii probably could do this most days of the year if he wants to. And then all he wants to do is go surf the big waves later. Like what we were yep. doing was, I was like, 
catching, you know, pinfish. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, and all he wanted yeah. to do is go catch tarpon. It's like, that's cool. We're happy to catch pinfish. But uh, I did it with my with my boys, and then I did it with my daughter on a separate trip to Hawaii. And uh, what I liked about the Hawaii waves is that you could, like, he would check you out, and if you were pretty good, then he'd be like, oh, let's move down the beach a little bit. And then he'd find a little bit different wave, and, and you know, if you are capable of doing that, then he put you on exactly the wave that you needed. And, yeah. and some of those waves would go so far. Like the Pacific was different. Like the, the power of the ocean felt different than on the East Coast. Big I don't know. Time. I don't know what the, I don't know why that is or whatever, but it just it just feels more powerful, even for a little, you know, two foot wave like yep. you're getting you're getting pulled out. And it seems like on the East Coast, the power of the wave is like powerful, but but short period like it, it wants to rip your feet out from under you. But then then it's over. And, yep. in, and then out there in the in Hawaii, where I, I've never been to. Well, never surfed in Costa Rica. I've been to Costa Rica for fishing, but. Man, it's it's incredible. But just to be out there is is pretty awesome. Um, what kind of fishing are you doing in Costa Rica? Uh, dude, I did everything from you know blue water offshore fishing to uh, rainbow trout fishing. Rainbow trout. Rainbow That's trout. Awesome. Yeah. What kind of uh, yeah. situation is that? Are those stocked fish? Uh, stocked fish from I think the 1940s, and really? uh, it was something. That this was a couple of years ago before we were making the big trip down. Uh, I saw Fly Lords actually posted a uh, little excerpt on Costa Rica trout fishing. And they, they didn't mention where it was, but they just mentioned, you know, like a place in Costa Rica where you can catch rainbow trout. So that piqued my curiosity. I started doing a little research, figure out where it was. And, you know, it was about five days before I left. I didn't have time to order any of the stuff I needed, you know, so I, I went on Amazon and ordered the Montana fly company, you know, beginners trout box, you know, it gave me like three of every fly ever made, you know, right. and, uh, I dragged my wife, uh, up, up a little town called San Gerardo de Dota, you know, write that down. If you're going to Costa Rica, you want to do something cool. But, uh, yeah, I dragged my wife to, to that little town. We stayed three or four nights and, uh, I should have hired a guide, but uh, there was none available. It's kind of a short notice deal. But uh, yeah, we just walked up and down, you know, and that was the thing. It's just finding the access points, you know, like where you're legally allowed to go and, you know, not get in trouble. And, yeah. you know, then, but uh, yeah, I and mean, that was, that was probably some of the favorite fishing that we did in Costa Rica. Really? So what does yeah, a Costa beautiful. Rican trout stream look like? Uh, looks kind of like how you picture it. You know, I mean, the, the the streams are high altitude, so you don't have quite as much of the tropical, you know, what you're thinking of like coastal vegetation, but yeah. still very lush and beautiful um, birds and monkeys. And, you know, the water is like small water, um, just absolutely gorgeous. And like, that's the thing with trout fishing is, you know, a lot of times it's about where you're doing it. Yeah. You know, I mean, trout, trout live in some beautiful places. And that's one of my favorite things about the species is where you get to fish for them. That's right, man. Um, and what the, that, that, is like a spring coming out of the out of the ground so the temperature can can sustain a rainbow trout yeah uh you know what i'd be i'd be lying if i tried to say the source of that river but uh it is uh i mean i'd be lying if i said the altitude but i mean it's it's high enough to where you know in the morning you want a jacket in the evening you want a jacket okay for sure and the water is probably 55 degrees somewhere wow. 60 degrees That's pretty yeah and enough to sustain them all year long. That's super yep. cool. And would you and they, catch they're any? Not, they're not. They're not big trout. You know, they're like they're all 13, small, 14 but, inches. 
I think the biggest I saw was probably 13 inches. That's cool. Yeah. And uh, they just ate all the beginner flies, nymphs, dry they flies, did, everything? Yeah, they, they, they really liked that nymph dropper. Yeah, it didn't matter what it was as long as it was a bead head and black. So are there hatches on those rivers there? Do uh, they, they have... They, they, yeah, they, they, they do get uh, they do get hatches and you know there's quite a, just a lot of you know terrestrial life you know on the creeks. Um, did catch a couple on dries, but you know there wasn't a hatch happening when I was there. Um, yeah, man, just just a really cool fishery to kind of immerse yourself in for a couple of days. That's so cool. My son yeah. is getting ready to um, to go down to New Zealand, and he's going to spend two months there. And that's uh, a bucket list for me. Me too. I mean, me too. I want to go there real bad. And uh, which island is he going to? Well, I th you know, he's st the the trip is still kind of materializing, but I think the South. Um, what? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's the South Island. Yeah, I've that's, never that's been the to island. It's supposed to be like the the beautiful, uh, epic trout yeah. fishing. Yeah. I mean, and and I think you know maybe with two months he might get over to both islands and do a little do a little exploring around and stuff, but, uh, that's another place that I've, I've just, you know, all the pictures that you see and the videos that you see are just, that's like definitely bucket list, lifetime, bucket kinda, list, lifetime kind of thing. What about the, um, you know, one thing that is interesting about you and, and you were in this, this, uh, uh, captains for clean water did a, a movie with you and, um, I think it's a real interesting perspective to to take your experience in Florida and your experience in Alaska and just to kind of get a perspective from from you on on like the state of the fisheries, water quality and you know like where you see us headed and where you know is there something that can be done because if, if if a lot of people don't know, there's some fishery issues in Alaska. There was the pebble mine, which you can tell us all about what, what was going on up there. And then, of course, we have stuff that we talk about on the podcast a lot with, with the water um, issues that we have in Florida and, you know, the state of the fishery in Florida. A lot of people are much more familiar with that. But give us kind of a, a compare and contrast between the two places and and what you've kind of seen in your 14 years of, of doing that up there? Uh, well, I mean, unfortunately, I've seen uh, both fisheries decline somewhat, uh, the extent of which varies. Um, but, you know, the whole pebble mine issue, for me, it was like, you know, I had a chance to, you know, at least use my voice to, you know, fight against the, this, this mine, right? And you have, I felt at least like, you know, it'd be like being in Florida, you know, and like Lake Okeechobee was never, never levied up on the south side and water still flowed naturally. And you had, you know, a farming company coming in and saying, hey, we want to stop the flow of water south, levy it up, create all this farmland. Like that would never happen now. Right. You mm -hmm. know, like, at least like you would, I would hope not. So, I mean, I wanted to at least like I, I, I saw, you know, like down the road, like, you know, if, you know, Pebble Mine was allowed to be in place and then you do have a catastrophic failure what that would do to one of the most pristine areas on the planet was it's just unacceptable, unacceptable. And I mean, we have, we have enough issues going on that we can't really control or we're trying to figure out how to control them. Um, 
So, you know, being able to, you know, stop a pebble mine or, you know, restore the flow of natural water through, through the Everglades is, to me, it's a no-brainer, you know. I mean, it's, we, we need to do everything we can to, to protect these wild places. And, uh, you know, I mean, like Florida, it's like there's so many, so many water issues going on in Florida. It just seems like one that's a, like I said, like a no-brainer, like, why can't we just send the water south back like the way it's supposed to go? Mm-hmm. Um, what uh, yeah. what have you seen is like in the two different places and the the effectiveness of of different strategies of getting involved. What what have you seen has been the most well? Well, first of all, I'd also like to for you to kind of bring us up to speed on the pebble mine and what what's going on with that, what happened with it. Uh, so the the pebble mine's permit for mining was denied. And uh, the EPA uh, provided, you know, they, they redid the uh, Clean Water Act thing that, uh, you know, basically, long story short, uh, in 2023, the EPA ruled that, you know, mining was never going to happen in Bristol Bay because of mining waste and the damage to the environment. Da, 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 da. Well, the summer, this last summer, the governor of Alaska sued the EPA saying that they had no right to basically make that ruling. Um, so as it stands now, uh, state of Alaska is suing the EPA, but mine is uh, the permit is still denied. Great. And so, do you think that um, that that action of denying that permit um, was influenced by anglers and outdoors people and their voices and people getting involved? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. I mean, uh, definitely. You know, that was a lot of fuel to the fire. You know, for fighting the pebble mine is is just you know raising public awareness and you know like a lot of people that they didn't know what pebble mine was i mean like when i shoot when i first got to alaska i remember seeing the stickers for pebble mine I'm like, kind of weird you know like who wants to mine pebbles you know <laughs> <laughs> you know so i mean like just bringing awareness to the issue and getting people involved um i think that's one of the biggest tools that we have to use in the fight is just gaining you know getting getting people behind the movement, you know, making them aware of the issues and then uh, letting them apply pressure. Mm-hmm. And when you see the effectiveness of what happened in Alaska and then the effectiveness of, of like Captains for Clean Water and what we've been able to accomplish there, what, what kind of comparisons can you draw? Are there anything that we can learn from, from what happened in Alaska that we could apply to Florida or vice versa? Uh and I mean, with Alaska, it's, you know, it's, it's encouraging to see, you know, something so detrimental to the environment get stopped, right? Like we're, you know, you always think that like, you know, money always wins, right? Like money's always going to prevail and, you know, the environmental issues, you know, are always going to lose to you know, corporate interests. And it was, it was very energizing to, uh, to see that get reversed. You know, I mean, this is a situation where, I mean, you have the largest gold deposit in the world and, you know, uh, environmental interests prevailed. Mm -hmm. Right. So that is, uh, that's very encouraging. It's something that I wish we could really change that tide in Florida where it's still, you know, like uh, our water issues that we're fighting for, you know, like the biggest proponent to those is the sugar industry, right? And so it's still like, you know, the climate is changing, but it still feels like, you know, you're the underdog and 
in a massive fight. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, well, we are the underdog in a massive fight. And, uh, and money, a lot of times, more times than not, does, does win. And in yep. this situation, the sugar industry is about as big a money as there is. Yep. Um, so I don't know. I think that Captains for Clean Water and many, many other groups are doing a great job of, of, of trying to bring awareness to the, to the issues and, and get people involved. Um, but, you know, I don't know. It is a big fight. And, and sometimes I notice that the momentum is, is dropping off like a little bit. You know what I'm saying? Especially when things are good or something yeah, else, um, something else happens like a hurricane or something else that needs even more immediate attention. Like the one that yeah. you had in Fort Myers not very long ago was a incredibly serious storm. And that place was, uh, I mean that the, the last time I saw you in person was at that captains for clean water event right yeah. there. And, and I drove all through there and it was rough. Um, yeah. as, as bad as, any hurricane I've seen, including you know yep. Katrina in uh, in in Louisiana, it was really really bad. And when something like that happens, and there's something more immediate that needs attention, it seems like you know maybe we lose a little momentum on the on the water fight, and maybe that's perfectly acceptable because that's what needs to happen. Like well, that's where our attention needs to go. But yeah. you know, it's how- exactly right though. I mean, I mean, with us, you know, like anytime we have a little drought in our rainy season and the water starts to clean up, you know, like there goes the, you know, the bulk of the public pressure, you know, it's like, Oh, like water's fine now. Like, what are we, you know, what are we fixing? You know, like yeah. we, we need to understand that the, the problem still persists. And uh, until we get a solution to that problem, you are always going to have the potential for those water quality issues. Well, I mean, don't you think that there's there already is a solution out there like with with the Okeechobee and uh you know the 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 things that I mean that's one of the things that got me more interested in in becoming involved uh with Captains for Clean Water was because they explained to me like well the solutions have already been voted on there's money there's everything we just need to bring awareness to this and make sure that these these things happen mm-hmm. and um you know they've been slow to happen, but I mean we've made some big, big uh, uh, strides, but certainly still a long way from, from, uh, from fixing the problem, because yeah. there's a lot of and, things to undo, you know, before yeah. you can fix anything. Yeah, and, and and so that was something that you know, like seeing all the stuff that we have to undo to fix our problems, right? Like you take the pebble mine in Alaska, like hey, you guys can prevent all this mitigation by just you know stopping the problem right now. You know, like no pebble mine, not here, not now, not ever. So, yeah, I mean, we have uh, we have a long road to go in Florida, um, but the climate has definitely changed. And thanks to groups like Captains for Clean Water, you know, applying pressure and promoting awareness, uh, you know, I feel like we have a voice in the fight now. And like, you know, we're able to make some noise. And uh, it's just, you know, Florida has more issues than just Lake Okeechobee and Everglades restoration. You know, I mean, it's kind of disheartening for me. Like, you know, when I get back from Alaska, I've only been gone four months, you know, but driving to the ramp and it's like, oh, there's another community they're putting up over there. Like, oh, they just destroyed that whole piece of land to put in a shopping center. Like, at what point does that stop? You know, I mean, we already have, you know just like, you know, water quality issues from localized factors and your fertilizer and your septic tank runoff and just outdated systems. And 
it's just, you know, like you see just more development, more development. It's just, you know, where's, where do we draw the line there? You know, I don't know. And then more people moving in every single day. Like Florida is people want to live there, you know, yeah. not, not just retirees, but you know, people from other States that don't like the way that they're being managed. And, and uh, you know, it's like, there, there are tons of people coming in. So that is the, that is the, the big question is, is yeah. where does it stop? And, and how do you, how do you uh, protect the things that people are moving there for? Like, that's why people want to live there. Not just because it's nice and sunny all the time, but because, you know, the beaches are beautiful. The water's clean, tons of birds, fishing's great. Like, yeah. but you may not even be interested in fishing, but still the water quality affects everyone like if you want to take a walk on the beach you don't want to do that during red tide when everything's dead and washing up on the beach nobody enjoys that um so you know like it, it applies to everybody and yep. and and that's where you know when things are good i think that that reminder still needs to be out there just like you were saying it's like man yeah it's good right now but Yep. Need to, yeah, you need, need, to, need to keep need to keep your foot on the gas. You know, even when the water's clean, you know, like you just got to realize, you know, like the water's it's not clean because of you know some big changes that have happened. It's clean because we're in a drought. You know, and there hasn't been a lot of rain for them to have to let out of the lake. You know, so it's yeah, just keeping your foot on the gas. You know, just like you said, you know, when times are good, you know, you got to stay on it. Right. How about the the hurricane recovery in your area? How's that um, going? Man, I mean, it's they they've done it. It's amazing the job they have done up until this point. Uh, unbelievable amount of amount of work that's been done. Um, but there's still an unbelievable amount of work that needs to be done. Um, I was on Fort Myers Beach the other day, and you know, just driving around here to say, yeah, how long till Fort Myers Beach is back to normal? I'd say five to eight years. Yeah, you know, and so like that's a long time. You know, that's that's a long time. The same goes for any of the coastal communities that were that were hard hit. You know, Sanibel, Pine Island, Mount Lache. You know, like they were, they took a hard beating, and it's it's a long road to recovery. But you know, recovery is underway. It's just understanding that it's going to take quite some time to get things back to what they were. Yeah, but on the other hand, it you know we're so fortunate that we have the um, the the facilities and the equipment and the people and the money to clean up like what has happened because of, like when you go to the Bahamas and, and you, you go there and you're like, huh, there's a whole bunch of just dilapidated things that look like they were once nice. You know, it's like, when did that happen? It's like, Oh, that was the storm, you know, 15 years ago. It's like, huh, you know, yeah. and, and you, you, sometimes you take for granted, like, you know, you say what you want about, FEMA, you know, I'm sure they don't do everything right, but man, that's a hell of a resource to, absolutely. we saw it, absolutely. we saw it in the keys, you know, with, after Irma, just these, these mountains of trash that could have easily just, just stayed there. Right. Like, yeah. but sooner or later, man, and, and you go for a long time and you're just like, man, they just seem to be moving this mountain of trash over there. And then there's now there's that mountain of trash, but then, you know, sooner or later, you're just like, huh, that whole thing's gone. Now it looks yep. looks a little better, and you know you just patience, I guess. But but it is kind of I don't know. It's incredible what what a storm like that, what kind of devastation it can do. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I remember being on the on the water a couple of days after the storm hit, and then just looking around at like every mangrove island, every shoreline, literally like you know, top of the trees where the water line was is just trash. You know, like literally every island, every shoreline, trash. I remember looking at it, being like, I'm, you know, like this is going to be an issue for the next you know ten to fifteen years. You know, where you're going to be fishing shorelines that still have trash from Ian and. uh I can't believe like they, you know, that crew, uh, thanks to FEMA, I mean, it's pretty damn clean, those shorelines now, like, unbelievable amount of work that went into that, and just, you know, all the beaches, the islands, the cleanup effort in general was unbelievable. Yeah, and and did you think that the fishing recovered pretty quickly after that storm, or what, what, what happened with, in that area, in your area, after that big storm? Uh, you know, right after the storm hit, you know, it knocked out the causeway. So, you know, my, you know, day-to-day operations were just getting people to and from Sanibel and, and helping out in any regard in any way, shape or form that I could in that way. So I didn't get to like, you know, initially fish right after the storm. Um, but, you know, you could tell that it was a, it was a huge mixing event, you know, like the, the water was turned up. Um, there was a lot of, you know, a lot of stuff in the water that shouldn't have been in the water. Um, so I would say the initial impacts were negative, but then, you know, just the lack of people on the water and the lack of pressure, you know, kind of, you know, it, it enabled for some really cool fishing scenarios that I hadn't seen play out in, uh, you know, since I was a kid, Mm -hmm. um, which was, which was cool to see, you know, pros and cons to both. But, uh, you know, I, I would think if we didn't, you know, like a hurricane naturally, you know, minus the, you know, human, uh, development, you know, I would think that would be a good, you know, it's a good thing for the fishery, right? You know, I mean, clean up the bottom, you know, pull some of that water out of the, out of the bay is just a, you know, like a little refresh, but yeah. you know, our issue was, you know, the storm came in and then it's, it's mixing, you know, all the human waste and trash and everything into the, so. Plus then they have to have a, a, a release a lot of water out of Okeechobee too, that, uh, yeah. you know, if you, if we get a ton of rain, even on the other side of the state, that water's coming your way and yeah. that, that can cause even more, more issues. But, you know, all in all, um, I think that the, the, the improvement sounds like it's going in the right direction. And, Absolutely. Uh, you know, I wish all the people in, in that, in all of those areas, the, the best man, it's, it's tough. You don't want to wish it on anybody, especially after going through it yourself, uh, several times in the keys. Yeah. It's, it's, it's rough, man. It's a rough deal, but, um, I'm glad to see things are on the on the improvement side yep. rather than the other way. Um, yep. You know, when we used to fish um, with your dad, and we would have a terrible uh, weather, you know, a front come in or um, something, and we're looking at the weather, and we're like, man, we're going to have to head to head for the barn. Um, there was always this threat of a pancake eating contest that you and I were supposed to have, <laughs> and uh, we've never gotten there. We've never gotten to this pancake eating contest, but your dad been talked about for a long time. It has been, and your dad assured me with a hundred percent certainty that there was no possible way that I could eat more pancakes than you. And you were really only ten or eleven years old. And yeah, uh, no way. I was just my dad being my dad. You know, like I was never like you know never like a killer pancake eater, but I was a little fat kid, you know, like that's probably what he was thinking about. Yeah. <laughs> we were supposed <laughs> hey, to I'll have tell it. you, like as, as confident as you are in the pancake eating contest, like I know I don't stand a chance. Uh, it, well, would be, it would be fun. I love, 
I love pancakes. It's one of my favorite foods. Uh, yep. So one of these days we're gonna we're gonna get to it, and uh, hopefully it won't be when when I finally get to go fishing with you on you know down here, and we have a bad weather day, and we end up having a pancake eating contest. But that would be okay. It's yeah. it's long overdue. Uh, I want your dad to be there though when I when I take you down. All right. I'm no Joey Chestnut, but you know I can eat. <laughs> I, can... I, I can eat maybe two two full stacks of really yeah. nice pancakes. So yeah. anyway, John, uh, it's been awesome catching up with you. Why don't you, um, if you could, how would people um, fish with you if they wanted to? I don't know if you even have any any time available, but you know, you always got to keep it out there. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, anybody that wants to get in, in touch with me, um, my Instagram at sportfisher uh, in Alaska, the at anglers alibi. Um, I run both of those pages. So, you know, send me a message there. My cell phone, like you said, call or text, um, 239-222-4265. Man, some of the uh, footage that you're getting on your, your Sport Fisher uh, Instagram, you should definitely follow both of those, uh, Angler's Alibi and Sport Fisher, uh, because John is getting incredible stuff of bears, of moose, of incredible, I mean, incredible stuff. And, and some of that's drone, I guess, or like some of the stuff I see is, is yep. drone footage and yep. it's incredible what you're, what you're getting up there. It's just, oh, thank you very much. Yeah. It's, it's an easy to, you know, Alaska makes, you know, an amateur photographer look like a pro. So, well, you know, you, know, you gotta have the right, you gotta have the good models and, and you definitely sure. do up there. How many, sure. um, like in the area that you're fishing are, do you see a lot of bears on a daily basis or, uh, I know there's some parts of Alaska where, it, you know, it's like, you're going to see, lots of bears every day. Like what, what's yeah. the bear situation where you are? Is it a lot of bears every day or kind of some a week? Uh, so early in the season when, uh, when sockeye is coming the river, um, it's definitely a daily, you know, you're going to see multiple bears daily. Um, and then that kind of, you know, like once the sockeyes move through the system and, uh, get up to the streams where they're going to spawn, you know, a majority of the bears follow the salmon, um, but there are bears that stick around for the other species, you know, your chums and pinks and silvers. And like, you know, I would, we expect to see bears every day, um, but the volume of which changes throughout the season. But uh, then as the season goes on, you know, we, uh, we do fly outs up to those streams where the sockeye are spawning, you know, like that's, we go in there and fish for rainbow trout. And uh, I mean, uh, we were at uh, one of our streams this past year and I remember sitting on the bluff and counted 38 bears just in the, wow. just in the body of water that I could see that we would be fishing 38. Wow. And then you just go on in there. Yeah, man. It's, it's literally like fishing inside the cage at the zoo. You know, it Dang. really is. Yeah. Like I had a guy, I had a guy this year, you know, we we're sitting down this where we saw this, all those bears and he looks at me and goes, Landry, like, are we allowed to go down there? And I was like, well, you are now, but you know, you see it probably 25 years from now where they put a stop to it. But yeah, it's. Wow. And it's, it's that amazing. seems to be something like when you're really green and just starting out, that seems to be something that would, would have been kind of difficult to get used to. Uh, Big time. Big time. Yep. How do you, how do you gain that experience and, and you just have enough encounters to where you kind of start to to understand them as we would understand a yeah, tarpon or absolutely. something else. Like you just kind of, yeah. you, you see their behavior and like, yeah. we're not getting anywhere close to that one. This one yeah. over here is okay, but that one, yeah. no. Uh, absolutely. Have you had some, um, 
interesting encounters? Oh yeah, I mean I've had a lot of a lot of interesting encounters. I've never had an encounter where I was truly like scared for my safety or the safety of you know the clients that I had with me. But uh, you know, like any time when you're fishing in that proximity to so many bears, you know, like you're gonna have stories for sure. Um, yeah, I've you know like like I said, nothing nothing deadly or like scary, but you know, like been been close to a lot of bears for sure. I'll tell you what, a, a grizzly bear, and especially one up there, which are larger than the ones that we have in Montana, and man, I mean, ultimate respect for that animal. Like, just yeah. What 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 you need to understand though is that because of the salmon, it's a totally different animal, and how you know it interacts with you, and how you interact with it, right? Yes. I, mean, I remember doing a, a trip out to Montana or uh, Wyoming when I was a little kid, and you know, like uh, the bears, you know, were definitely a threat to your day. You know, if you saw a bear, it wasn't a good thing. You know, it was mm-hmm. a, it was a serious situation and, uh, because of the lack of food, right. Um, out in Alaska, you know, the salmon run is so prolific that, you know, like the bears don't view you as a food source, you know, like they, you know, you can put yourself in a situation where like that bear could view you as a competition for his food source, but yeah. you know, like, Bear's not going to see you and like you know be you know dying of hunger and like oh I need to go eat that fisherman you know so it really creates a a unique environment for you to interact with you know these huge animals that can rip you apart in a second yes you know, uh, it's it's pretty pretty special and I think mean, it's probably one of my favorite things about fishing in Alaska it's just like that relationship you get to build with the bears and really cool that's awesome man. That's awesome. I'd love to come up there and, and fish with you. What what is the um, what what's the the status of that lodge? I mean, do, do you take new customers up there, or is it booked out years in advance, or what's what's the deal? Uh it's it's booked out. Uh, I'd say about you know depending on the weeks when you want to come. You know, like you're booking about two years out. Um, but you know how it is. You know, there's always you know guys that you know have to drop out for one reason or the other, and you know, so it's always worth a worth a phone call if you're interested, and you know, get yourself on a list for this year, or you know, get yourself a spot next year. What's but you know, we're, ca- we're a small lodge. We take we take twelve guests a week. Yeah, that's um, what I was going to ask. What the capacity of the of the lodge was. Yeah. And then you have flyouts right from the lodge out to yep. wherever you're going to go. Yep. And are those float planes or or wheel planes? Float planes. And they float land planes. on um on the river, or you land on like a you land right on the river? Uh, it, it depends. A lot of the times uh, when we're flying out to these small streams, you know, like the streams are too small to accommodate a float plane. Right. So you're you're landing in like a little pothole lake, you know, that's somewhat like, you know, you have a mile or two hike to get to the river, but you're landing in like a little tundra pothole, basically. Wow. That's yeah. that's cool, man. Those, pl- those pilots up there are yeah. serious. I mean, when I went, I did a little fly out deal one time in Alaska and, and the pilot was like, Oh man, I forgot my wallet. And I was like, okay. And he's like, we're going to stop by my house. And we landed, he had like a little pothole in front of his house, but he kept the the airplane on. And man, I mean, we started going in there and I was like, that's your house. And this, we're going to land this on that plant, on that little Uh, drip of water. Like he's yep. like, oh yeah, every day. And I'm like, okay, yep. and sure enough, man, he dropped that thing in there and landed, pulled up, runs inside, grabs whatever he needed, 
And then here we go out of there. I didn't think that there was enough room for us to take off on that thing. Uh, yeah. Those guys are seriously legit. Those pilots, they're, up there. they're legit. Yeah, yeah. They're, every they're true weather, like it, no matter what the weather, they're. I mean, well, I mean, I'm sure as a true professional, they're also going to call it when it's not something yep. that they need to be doing. But man, yep. I mean, I just, I just couldn't believe it. And and that's the cool thing is like. That's how they deliver the mail. That's how they like everything I mean, is is float plane. So like as comfortable as you would be as a as a Uber driver in New York, I guess that's how they are in yeah. you know in that float plane. It's just every day they get in that thing, and that's what they do. Just yeah. deliver stuff everywhere. People delivering people, delivering mail, delivering yeah. everything. Just yeah. incredible. I mean that yeah. that part. Just like you're talking about the you know the bears are one of your favorite parts about Alaska. It's like you know, or, or, or certain types of hunting. Like I like to watch the dogs as much as I like to, to, to actually hunt the birds or anything. It's like, it's all, almost the same kind of experience of, I like to, you know, watch these float plane pilots as much as I like to, you know, fish. Absolutely. Like it's, yeah. it's pretty cool. All right, man. Well, it's been awesome catching up with you. We will have our pancake eating contest. Um, I don't like anything in my pancakes if you're going to make them. I don't like blueberries. Nope. or. Yeah, or, I'm the same way. Yeah. Don't put I mean, any chocolate chips in there. Nothing. It's already good. Why do you want to yeah. put something better in it? Pancakes are already yeah. awesome. So yeah. I don't, I, we're, we're good with that. We'll have plain pancakes and, and lots of them. All right, Looking John. It's it. been awesome catching up with you. Please tell your dad I said hello. Uh, and uh, wish him my best, and uh, we'll catch up with you uh, soon, hopefully on the boat together one of these days. Sounds good, Tom. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks, John. See you.